Greetings, Word Horde. We're here with an exciting option for you, a version of our podcast without any ads. That's right. No advertising interruptions, just the content you love, ready to go in your favorite podcast apps like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It's another way to support the show, ensuring that we keep bringing you the word stories and language explorations that you love. Try it at waywardradio.org slash adfree. And it's affordable. For just a small subscription fee, you can enjoy Away With Words uninterrupted, except by us. Plus, it makes a great gift. Know somebody who loves language as much as you do? Give them the gift of words. Easy to sign up, easy to enjoy. It's the same Away With Words, just streamlined for your listening pleasure. Go to waywardradio.org slash adfree. Support us, support the show, and enjoy an ad-free listening experience. waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Hey, Grant, thank you so much for sending me that collection of slang from the sporting news in the 19, what was it, 1933? Oh, yeah, the baseball slang from 1933. That was, I knew you'd love that. It's just the <laughs> thing we, we like to say back and forth, isn't it? I know. Baseball is just this endless repository of fantastic slang. It's so poetic. I love, for example, fishing trip which is swinging at a bad ball. He took a fishing <laughs> yeah, trip. Like, that's totally what they're doing. They're just like throwing the bat out there, just kind of trying to hit any <laughs> junk that comes their way. Right. And sometimes they end up with a line drive to the catcher. That's when they they miss the third <laughs> strike. <laughs> a line drive to the catcher. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, but, but somebody who's really good is going to pour on the pine. They're going to hit that ball really solidly. Mm-hmm. Pour on pour the pine. On the pine. And one that really jumped out at me was the term collisions. Oh, yeah. I think we've mentioned that on the show before. That's an intentional, jokey mispronunciation of collegian, referring to college-level baseball players who often think they're hot stuff when they come up to the the (laughs) show or the big time, the big leagues. And so they kind of get teased and made fun of. Well, maybe we can talk some more about baseball slang later in the show. Absolutely. And, you know, we've got a lot of sports players who listen to the show by radio and podcast, send us your stuff. We'd love to hear what they talk about in your league or your game, 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or tell us about the sport you play at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Michael from Trophy Club, Texas. From Texas. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Listen, here's my question. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my Italian grandmother always had a saying. Whenever she wanted to say yes, she would say, you bet your bippy. So, actually, I've got a few questions. One, what is a bippy? Two, <laughs> what is the value of a bippy? Three, do I have a bippy? Four, why would I want to bet it? And five, if I were to lose my bippy in a wager, what would it cost me to replace it? Oh, Michael. Uh <laughs> Well, I think we this can help you with that. This has been for a long time. We can definitely help your bippy. Okay. Yeah. Now, did you say this was your? Did you say this was your mother or your grandmother? My grandmother. Your grandmother. Okay. Um, are you old enough to remember variety shows from the 1960s by any chance? Unfortunately, I am. Yes. Well, there was a wacky variety show uh, that was appointment listening for our family called Laugh-In back in the day. Do you remember that one? I remember Laugh-In well. The guy on the tricycle. Yeah, yeah, the guy on the tri- the guy who would ride the tricycle in his raincoat and fall over and Goldie Hawn, Lily Tomlin, yeah. Goldie Hawn, Buzzy. Yeah, yeah. she jumped out the little wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they had Judy they had what Karn. they called yeah, they had what they called a joke wall, right. which was sort of like sort of like an advent calendar where all these little doors would open and people <laughs> would just, you know, stick their heads out and, and say one liners and it was it was really crazy, really goofy. When I think of it, I just think of all these psychedelic colors and patterns and go right. boots and people dancing and that kind of thing. And Rowan and Martin's Laugh In, which aired in the late nineteen sixties, uh, on Monday nights, I think, spawned a whole lot of catchphrases like what you see is what you get, and the devel made me do it, right. and uh, and sock it, sock to, it me, to me. Of course. You, do you that remember beautiful Richard downtown Nixon? Burbank? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Richard Nixon, 
Do you remember this? Richard Nixon was actually on that show saying, sock it to me. Oh, that's right. Just, <laughs> I do remember that. Just briefly. And blow in my ear and I'll follow you anywhere. And um, relevant to our show, yes. look that up in your Funkin' Wagnalls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. It was just this this crazy hour of, of goofy uh, 60s fun. And um, one right. of the phrases in there... Uh, was, you bet your sweet Bippy, Dick Martin, the comedian, uh, used to say that. And as you might guess, Bippy was sort of a euphemism for, you know, your derriere, your tuchus, your right. rear. You bet your sweet Bippy. Wow. So, indeed, you do have one, Michael, I assume. Um, and- <laughs> <laughs> Betting is, is you can win or lose. It almost seems like yes or no. Yeah, but it's another one of those things that comes from the American fascination with gambling. We have all these words in our culture that come from gambling. So it's just kind of an over-the-top hyperbolic response when you should just be saying yes. You say, you betcha. You bet your sweet ass I do. (laughs) Got it. Well, that makes way more sense. Thank you very much for answering my question, and I will keep my bippy where it is. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Michael, thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Very interesting. (laughs) And that's the truth. (laughs) They talked about it on the show, what the meaning of Bippy was. There was an exchange between Martin and Rowan, and and Martin says, you bet your sweet Bippy I would. And Rowan says, I've been meaning to ask you, what's a Bippy? And Martin says, it's a baby Bip. And Rowan says, yeah, but what's a Bip? And Martin says, a big Bippy. And Rowan says, are you sure? And Martin says, you bet your sweet Bippy, I'm sure. <laughs> so it's it's just a totally nonsense word that, that everyone, as far as we know, came up with. They came up with it. It didn't, it didn't exist before they said it. Oh, that show was such a hoot. Sparkle Farkle oh, yeah. and Furred Burfle and <laughs> it, it kind of it's like a it was like a firework. It it burned brightly and then it yeah. was gone. <laughs> I just keep picturing the colors, you know, magenta yeah. and chartreuse and orange. And that fast paced editing that later became pretty standard for television. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could just have one person stick their head out of a window and say one word, and it was just hilarious. Well, whether you're in beautiful downtown Burbank or you want us to look something up in our Funkin' Wagnalls, you can give us a call, 877-929-9673, or email us words at waywardradio.org. Hello. You have a way with words. Hello. This is uh, Bart from Winslow, Indiana. Well, what's on your mind, Bart? Well, I've been uh, umpiring baseball a long time, and I've been uh, always heard a uh, can of corn for routine fly ball and had no idea what corn and baseball had together. Can of corn for routine fly ball. What, what level of sport do you umpire in? Uh, I've umpired anywhere from uh, eight-year-olds up through college level. 30 years, you said. That's a long haul. It's the best thing you can do to get paid. Really? <laughs> yeah, day, really? day yep. in the grass. <laughs> So a can of corn in baseball, you said it's a, an ordinary pop fly? Yeah, just an ordinary routine fly ball to the outfield. Uh, but one that's easy to catch, right? Correct. Okay, gotcha. There are a bunch of theories on this. This is a, this is a widespread term. It's kind of gone in and out of fashion over the years. It's funny when you look back through you know, the sporting news or uh, baseball writers over the decades since the term first appeared in the 1920s or maybe even earlier, uh, somebody's always declaring, you know, can of corn is outdated slang and nobody should use it. And yet it still keeps sticking around. They said it in the 40s. They said it in the 50s. They said it in the 70s. And people are still using it. One of the most common theories about why it's called a can of corn is because it's this big, heavy, obvious thing that's really easy to catch. Like if I were to toss you a can of corn, no matter how good my arm is, um, I can't get a lot of speed on it. And you're going to probably catch it, right? It's just going to be really easy to catch. It's just an obvious, easy-to-see thing. Another idea is that supposedly it comes from the way that canned goods would be stacked in the old days in grocery stores, you know, with these tall shelves behind the shopkeeper um, where you wouldn't pick up your own groceries, but the shopkeeper would use this hooked pole to kind of nudge the cans down from the high shelves, and then they would catch them either by hand or in a big shop apron. And so the can of corn baseball kind of looks like that canned good coming down in the sh- to the shopkeeper. And then there are other theories, but th- those are the ones that are, have the best best information behind them. All right. Make sense? Well, I'm glad to glad to know that. Uh, yeah, I had no idea. I was tossing it around like whether it was 
you know, when canned goods came out and you didn't have to work so hard to get your corn or not, you know, I <laughs> kind of had that idea. <laughs> well, that's a thought. You don't have to shuck the thing or cook it. You just exactly. grab a can of corn. It, it's oh, that's easy. funny. Well, yeah. that reminds me, another theory is that, um, and I kind of like this one too, because you know that particular sound that when the bat hits the ball just right and you just know it's going to be a pop fly even before you see it go up? That like that kerplunk sound. Some people think that sounds like a a can of corn being hit. So <laughs> some some people think that that's why it's called a can of corn. Okay, Bart. Let me ask you while I got you on the line. Have you ever heard that also called a rainmaker? No, I haven't. Okay, because that that was an old fashioned term for it, and I just didn't know if it still had any currency. The idea with the pop well, pie being called a rainmaker is it went up so right. high that it brushed the clouds mm-hmm. and caused the rain to come down. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that, but not on the you know the routine fly ball. Those are the usually the ones that are just really hit really really high. Well, oh, nowadays I, gotcha. I think more people just say, "Hey, you're going to bring the rain with that one." You know, I heard that. Mm. Oh, gotcha. There's so much great oh. baseball language, Bart. Oh, you're going to have to call us again with some more, okay? Yes, please. Can we get you to do I that? I sure will. Okay. Right. Well, thank you so much. All right, keep thank it clean you. out there, Bart. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You know, speaking of sounds, I'm pretty sure that when aluminum bats started to become popular, I remember the columnist George Will really hating aluminum bats and saying, if the sound of aluminum bats was an object, it would be a can of lima beans or something like that. <laughs> He did not like aluminum bats, and he's a big baseball fan, of course. But it was something like that. Like an aluminum bat is the sound of lima beans. (laughs) I always felt that the wood versus aluminum argument in in baseball-like sports was very similar to the vinyl versus CD argument in music. Oh, that's really interesting, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like that feeling and that sound when it just cracks, you know, right in the right spot. Well, we've got a lot of people playing sports. Even during the pandemic, people will find a way to get out there. And uh, whether it's disc golf or billiards or games you play um, on the beach, give us a call. Tell us your lingo, 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or share it with the world on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Here's another bit of baseball slang, horse collar. Do you know this term? C-O-L-L-A-R, horse collar? Uh, Vaguely familiar. Catch me up. Well, you know, a horse collar is round, right? It's just one big loop. And so if you horse collar somebody, you hold them to zero. Ah, so it's a goose egg. Exactly. It's a goose egg or or like in tennis when you bagel somebody. It's it's Mm -hmm. that shape that looks like a zero, a horse collar. So if the Yankees horse collar the Mets, they've kept them to zero. Exactly. 877-929-9673. More about what we say and why we say it as Away With Words continues. Got a minute? We need your help. Head over to gum.fm slash words and share your thoughts in our quick survey. Your feedback matters. It's the backbone of our show's success. Thanks for making our show even more successful. That's gum.fm slash w-o-r-d-s. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. And joining us now from New York City is our quiz guy, John Chinesky. Hey, John. Hey, Martha. Hello, Grant. Hi, Bob. Today's quiz is, is very much a straightforward trivia quiz, uh, but you don't have to know much to do well. You don't have to know anything. You have to know nothing because it seems nothing is everywhere. 
For example, it was originally pitched as a sitcom about how a comedian gets his material, but a later in-joke in the show led many to believe that what show is about nothing? Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Of course, Seinfeld, sure. So this is all stuff about nothing, and it relates to words. You'll see. Okay, yeah. The name of what very early science fiction character from an 1870 novel is Latin for nobody. Uh, modern listeners are perhaps much more familiar with the lost fish of the same name. Nemo. Oh, yeah. Yes. Captain, Captain Nemo. Nemo yeah. Literally nobody. Now, Jules Verne cannot be accused of laziness in naming his submarine captain, though. It's more likely he was inspired by Utis, a pseudonym used by what title character to outwit a cyclops? Odysseus. Odysseus, yes. In what uh, what work? The Odyssey. In the Odyssey, right. Now we're going to move from people to places. Though it is only the third least densely populated, what U.S. state is the only one that can be accurately described as empty? <laughs> Montana. Montana. Why would that be, Martha? Because the uh, abbreviation for it is Is MT. MT, right. Now, what (laughs) band's name literally means blowing out or quenching in Sanskrit? In the Buddhist context, it refers to the ultimate goal of non-self or emptiness attained by escaping the cycle of rebirth. Is it nirvana? Mm -hmm. It is nirvana, yes. It means like blowing out a candle, nirvana. Finally, we'll bring this quiz about nothing back around into a big zero with a question about Seinfeld. On the TV series Seinfeld, what quality is shared by the characters Bob Sacamano, Lomez, and Cousin Jeffrey? Nothing. They have nothing in common. (laughs) That's a great answer. (laughs) But they do have something in common. Uh, All played by the same actor. Are they no. imaginary? Do they never appear on screen? They never appear on screen, and they are never seen. I don't know about imaginary; doesn't quite make oh. it, but uh, they are <laughs> referred to. That far. <laughs> but never seen. Of course, the most famous unseen character in literature and plays and movies is Godot. Godot, big zero there. He never shows up. Well, that's my big quiz about nothing. Uh, you guys actually did better than nothing, so well done. <laughs> well, what a relief. <laughs> Finally, a quiz for us. <laughs> right. We're delighted to take your quiz questions. If you've got a puzzle or riddle for us, just send it an email to words at waywardradio.org. And, of course, we want to talk to you about language. Got an idea, got a thought, got a dilemma. 877-929-9673 or spread it all out on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, welcome to Away With Words. Hi, this is Vivian. I'm calling in from Seattle. Hi, Vivian. Welcome to the show. So, you know, like everyone who does a ton of computer work, most of my days are spent in meetings in a corporate setting. And Mm. half of these are these uh, recurring meetings that either I have to schedule myself or that, you know, others schedules with me. And so my question concerns how we refer to the reoccurrence because it's been bugging me ever since I had my first corporate job. And so the specific question I have, and I'd love to understand your thoughts about the system here as well, is how can biweekly simultaneously mean twice a week and every other week? Yeah, that's that can cause problems in the workplace, right? It definitely can. And I'm just completely confused how these numeric prefixes work with our, you know, common measures of time to mean what they mean. And, you know, it seems like at least in the company I work for, uh, biweekly meetings are really common, and we've taken it to mean every other week. But to me, it definitely sounds like it should be twice a week. Yeah, biweekly is just one of those words that we call a skunked word because different people can take it different ways, and it's just so confusing. If you want to get technical about it, when you're modifying an adverb of time and you're using the prefix by, which means to, that time interval should be doubled. So if you're having a bi-weekly meeting, that occurs one time every two weeks. And a bi-monthly meeting takes place once every two months. But the best thing to do is just to say exactly <laughs> what what it is, you know, twice a month or, or every two weeks or something like that, because biweekly is just right, Grant. I mean, it's just it's just a yeah, skunk term. 
you're just inviting confusion from new employees or people um, outside vendors or new partners working with the company. I mean, if you have to keep explaining this particular usage to everyone, it's just going to cause problems. Or say semi-weekly or semi-monthly, just yeah. avoid the bi-usually uh, or, or fortnightly, oh. just avoid the bi-weekly altogether. Yeah, Grant raises a good point. Even if you're using it consistently within your company, uh, somebody else from the outside might not get it and <laughs> might show up for a meeting when they shouldn't have or, or miss one. Um, you know, if you're talking about the prefix semi, it means that the interval of time should be cut in half. So a semi-monthly meeting oh. is going to be held twice a month, cutting the month in half. But the best thing to do is is just to say specifically when, when that meeting is. Totally. And I actually work as a designer and primarily working on, you know, like apps and websites. And so something that's really important to me when I'm designing all these screens is like, how do you label things and what are the instructions? And mm. I noticed that, you know, in like the email program, like Outlook that lets you schedule meetings, they're just very clear that it's about like the specific measure of time, like you said, Martha mm -hmm. and Grant, which is like every uh, two weeks or like every other day mm -hmm. or rather mm -hmm. than using these uh, numeric prefixes, which can be so confusing. Right. right. It's a shame that we don't have good shorthand for this. But but again, spelling it out with more words in this case is worth it. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. And you know how in the corporate setting, everyone just loves to make very short, snappy communication sure. and we love our jargon. But it totally mm -hmm. gets in the way sometimes, as you said, especially with uh, newer people. And so, and especially working with uh, coworkers uh, from across the world, right? Oh, yeah. And, oh, right? yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you so much for answering my question. And I just wanted to say I especially love when uh, you two bring us really interesting sayings from other languages around the world. They just paint these really vivid pictures and you know, they're my favorite part of the show. So thank you so much. Okay. For this oh, really? Show. We'll try to do more of that just for yeah. you, Vivian. We will. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Take thanks, care. Vivian. 877-929-9673. We're still hearing from listeners about their favorite independent bookstore names, and one of them came from uh, Chatham, Massachusetts. Uh, Patty Linder wrote us about a bookstore that's been there for 40 years now. It's called The Yellow Umbrella. That reminds me of a children's bookstore that was here in San Diego for a long time, The, the Yellow Book Road. Oh, that's so sweet. There was a lovely little place that moved from place to place until the pressures of the market finally took them down. Mm. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, <laughs> this is Melinda Blanchard calling from the eastern shore of Virginia. Ooh, nice. Hi, Melinda. Welcome. Well, since I moved here uh, five years ago, I've noticed that anytime somebody local um, asks where I'm from, I tell them New Jersey and they say, oh, you're a come here. And I'm just curious if that is something that is just here or if that phrase is used in other areas of the country. And sometimes it's not a good thing. Oh, really? Hmm. So Tell us more that's about the, that. That's the way I feel. <laughs> so for the rest of the country, kind of paint a picture of where you are exactly in the state. We're on the peninsula. Virginia has two parts, which a lot of people don't know. Um, the Delmarva Peninsula. Uh, we are on the east side of the Chesapeake Bay. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Very good. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And okay. And so you've been there how long now? About five years. And when they say you're a come here, do you feel offended? Uh, it depends on the tone. Um, I'm getting used to it now. Um, but at the beginning, I was like, what? <laughs> um, so it's, it's contextual, right? Yes, exactly. Sometimes it's just a term for a somebody who wasn't born there and somebody sometimes it's a little disparaging yes exactly yeah mm. okay and they say that directly to you yeah that's the question <laughs> yeah. is it behind your back or to <laughs> you oh, yeah. you're oh no 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 they'll say it they'll say it to your face yeah 
Well, it's kind of been ongoing since at least the 1960s and probably earlier. The term come here has existed for outsiders who've come to that part of Virginia, usually for vacation or second homes or third homes even. Um, And not just that part of the peninsula, but all along both sides of the Chesapeake Bay in eastern Virginia and and the surrounding inlets and all the different kind of uh, along the rivers and so forth, all the different kind of places there. Author John Dos Passos was one of the come here's at one point and lived on the west side of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, west side, okay. If you're not a come here, you're probably a born here or a from here. Although from there are here. also comeback here's natives who have moved back. Oh, I hadn't um, heard that one. Some of these are jokey terms. I don't know how widely they're used. But the question is okay. how long you have to live there to become a, a, a from here. Do you have any idea? Any? Did anybody tell you how long... You're going to stay at come here? Uh, no, I have no idea. I do know that one of the people that refers to me as come a come here, you know, with the disparaging remark was actually from Connecticut. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know that that's really fair. Um, but uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> well, hmm. there's there's one bit of uh, actually federal testimony from former Virginia governor and U.S. Senator Chuck Robb. Um, about how long one had to live in Virginia to overcome having lived in Michigan. It was a bit jokey. He says, well, there are parts of Virginia where you know you have you have to have eight generations buried in the local county before you are referred to as anything but a come here. <laughs> and then there's a right. notation. <laughs> yeah. So eight so generations no. buried. <laughs> so, wow. uh, so that's from a Great. former Virginia governor and senator. So that tells you something. That's so interesting. I'm not aware of this term being uh, used anywhere else besides southeastern Virginia. Are are you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean there there are terms in other parts of the world for people who come from other places, but I think the term "come here" is pretty much localized to that. Yeah, it looks like it. I I have no have never seen it anywhere else. All of my reference works and all of my searching and variety of different periodicals only ever have turned it up in reference to Eastern Virginia. So you're special. Well, and there are a lot of us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Now, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Thanks so much, Melinda. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, there's such rich and wonderful language there in that area of the Chesapeake Bay. And Delmarva. Just, uh, mm-hmm. I can't wait for more calls from everyone there. Do call us with your wonderful language, 877-929-9673, or talk to Martha and me on email, words at waywardradio.org, or tell us everything in, on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Mark calling in from the Chicago area. So my question is, when did a forward slash become a backslash? I think I know what you mean by that, but will you explain? Uh, Yes. So frequently when listening to radio or podcasts and there are advertisements where somebody wants to send you to their website, they will say, you know, for more information, visit www.website.com backslash such and such. Uh, you know, to direct you to a specific page. And to me, the thing that it should be, that they should be saying is uh, forward slash, not backslash, Um, but I'm open to being told that I'm wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All right. Why are you, why are you noticing this? I mean, are you in a background where this is particularly apparent to you? I mean, do you work in tech? Are you a computer programmer or something like that? I'm in my mid thirties, but I've been programming for probably 25 years. Uh, you know, my friends and I were teaching each other and ourselves how to program uh, in, you know, basic and and other up and coming languages when we were in uh, middle school and grade school, <laughs> late uh-huh. grade school. So and, and I've continued since then to go into the IT field and into information security. So for me, there is a huge distinction between what is a backslash and a forward slash and I see that distinction observed in my circles and in tech circles, but then outside of that, it it does not (laughs) appear to be observed in the same way. Yeah, I I asked because I worked in IT for a long time, too, and I remember teaching people how to use the Internet in the early 90s, and it was a struggle, you know. It was a struggle to get people not, even then, not to call it a backslash. And I'm like, 
you know, unless you're talking about a Windows file path or you're programming, it's almost always a forward slash, you know, and definitely in internet path files, you know, path names or in the internet, you know, the URL, it's a forward slash. And, and I think um, it's a really common thing to call it a backslash. But, and there's another reason why um, I think people do that. And it's that for some people, it doesn't look like it's moving back. It looks like it's moving forward. They don't think of it as leaning back. Like on Stack Exchange, people are talking about it. They're bickering about it. And some people say, no, it, it's, it, it looks like it's moving forward because it, it starts at the upper left and it goes forward to down to the right. It's going forward. Yeah, I, um, I, I can get that. But at the same time, to me, it looks like it's leaning forward because it leans in the same direction that in penmanship, for example, you are taught to lean your letters to the right. Bingo. Right? Um, mm-hmm. Bingo. Yes, Mark, that's it exactly. So, so the mistake that they're making is not thinking about when you learned to write, you start on the baseline. This is a jargon from, from topography. The baseline is where you begin to write your letters. And both of these punctuation marks start on the baseline. Imagine the word happy, H-A-P-P-Y. The H and the A, the, they sit on top of the baseline. But the letters P-P-Y, they have descenders. These are those little legs that go below the baseline. And only like the circles of the P and like the V part of the Y sit on that baseline. So so you have to start where the character begins the baseline before you start to think about what means forward and what means backward. Right. So the backward slash is clearly backward when you start at the baseline and go up and to the left, which is back. And the forward slash clearly is up and to the right, which is forward because we're a left to right language. But when you're hearing somebody talk about just uh, giving an Internet address, they tend to say backslash at the end. Is that what you're saying? Like, yeah. Right. It's not a backslash. Yeah. Mark is right. Yeah. There's no argument about it. I mean, this isn't one of those things like, well, maybe it's a backslash. Yeah. It's never a backslash. Yeah. It's always a forward slash in an internet address. I wonder if it's just easier to say backslash and it sounds like backsplash, like on a sink. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, you know, forward slash, it's, it's kind of... Um, um, it's clunky. You know, yeah, it's, it's clunky. It's more clunky, and it, yeah. Yeah, it's more work. <laughs> yeah, backslash is, mm-hmm. is fluid and uh, it's got... You know, almost rhymes, and it's easy yeah, to say, yeah, yeah. and you've heard a lot of people say it, so it comes easier to the tongue. Yeah, I'm surprised that copy editors uh, are not are not catching it, but it's possible, I guess, that they are making a conscious decision to use the wrong word because it sounds better, and they know that people will understand it, um, and probably type the correct thing, or the web browser will correct it for them. Well, and in punctuation, it's called a virgule, too, right? <laughs> that that forward be. slash, yeah, which comes from a Latin word that means twig. But um, maybe we can get people to say that, you know, give an Internet address and then say virgule. But, it's, Martha, end. it's complicated. In Unicode, the character is called a solidus, which is a different yep. thing altogether from mathematics. So the name isn't <laughs> even a good guide. Well, once we all have our cyber implants, it'll all be clearer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for the chip in my lobe. <laughs> Hey, Mark, thanks so much for calling and sharing your experience. Thank you guys for having me on. Take care now. Bye-bye. Call us, 877-929-9673. Hey, we've got something special for those of you who love our show but could do without the ads. That's right. Imagine a way with words, the same engaging conversations, the same deep dives into language without advertising interruptions. We're talking about our ad-free podcast feed. It's sleek, clean, and it's just for our supporters. It's at waywardradio.org slash ad-free. It's inexpensive, easy to sign up for, and works with all major podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's an affordable way to support the show and get a seamless listening experience. And if you're feeling generous, why not give a subscription to another Away With Words fan? That's waywardradio.org slash adfree. Sign up today. Your support means the world. waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Here's a word worth reviving, respair. 
It's R-E-S-P-A-I-R, respair. And as a noun, respair means the return of hope after a period of despair. And as a verb, respair means to have hope again. And both forms of this word are apparently modeled after their older etymological relative, as you can imagine, Grant, despair, which comes from the Latin sperare, meaning to hope. The Oxford English Dictionary lists only one citation each for the noun and the verb forms of respair, and they're both from the early 15th century. So for some reason, the English language hung on to the word despair, but this other word, respair, is all but forgotten. So I think it's high time we revived it, and I learned this word from a new book called The Cabinet of Calm, Soothing Words for Troubled Times. It's by Paul Anthony Jones, and it's a collection of 51 obscure words. It's sort of a a browsing book of words chosen to provide comfort and inspiration and peace of mind mind. That sounds lovely. It sounds a good way to like balance your spirit or um, clean up your mood. Let me give you another one. Meliorism. M-E-L-I-O-R-I-S-M. It's the belief that the world or society may be improved and suffering alleviated through rightly directed human effort. That's the OED's uh, definition of it. And it's uh, as opposed to optimism or pessimism, meliorism, like ameliorate. Oh, yeah. So related to ameliorate, to make better. Yes. Yes. Or or words like mejor in Spanish. Another one I really like is cultillation, C-U-L-T-E-L-L-A-T-I-O-N, cultillation. It comes from Latin cultellus, which means knife, and it's the solution of a problem by dealing with it piecemeal. And it's a term that comes from surveying. And I thought that was so cool. You know, you, you've got this big problem or this big uh, piece of land to survey, and it's too difficult to do it all at once, so you break it up into little pieces, cultillation. Oh, and that's the best advice, isn't it? For so yes. often a, a big amorphous problem broken down into pieces suddenly seems manageable. Yes. When you can turn a problem into a list of to-dos, you're like, wait, that wasn't that hard after all. Yeah. Yeah. You do one and then you get encouraged and you do another. Cultillation. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the book is called The Cabinet of Calm, Soothing Words for Troubled Times. By Paul Anthony Jones. Correct. Our listeners often send us words that they appreciate, that bring them joy, or they consider their favorites. We know you've got those. We'd love to hear the words that bring you joy or give you optimism. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or tell us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hi there. You have a way with words. Hi, this is Elena from Richmond, Kentucky. What's going on, Elena? So my friend and I have this debate that's been going on for six months. Um, what? She said, I know, six months. Wow. Can you believe that? And <laughs> I know. And neither of us, neither of us will give in to that the other one is right. So I thought the only one that can settle this is you all. So. Oh, boy. And she's here with me in the room. So because oh. I knew that she would she would never believe when I tell her that she's going to be wrong about this. So. <laughs> no pressure there. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, let's hear it. Lay it out for us. So my friend says that when she, when there is no one else to blame, she gets blamed for things. So she says that she is the fault default. And I said, no, you've got it backwards. If you are the one that always gets blamed for things, then you are the default fault. And so we just will not let this go. Because I'm thinking, okay, like a computer, you go back to your default settings. It's the, the original kind of go back, go to everything. And she says, I'm wrong. She thinks that she is the fault default. Six months we've been going at this. Oh my gosh. So, you, so you're blaming her for being wrong then. Well, that's <laughs> blaming. I'm always blaming so this her. This is all about her being wrong and you're still blaming her. <laughs> that's right. We have a, we have a bet going on. Whoever wins, the loser has to pay for the next Airbnb for us to get away from the real world with this pandemic. So... Oh, I need her. To, I, I need her to pay for the trip. <laughs> oh man! Sound, you, you sound like good friends, uh, equally stubborn, equally <laughs> persistent. <laughs> well, now wait. She's she's there with you, six feet away. Yes, she is. Oh, let's talk mm-hmm. to her. What is her name? Erin. Erin. Okay. Erin. Yep. So I'm gonna put her on. Okay. Hello. This is the fault default speaking. <laughs> 
Hi, Aaron. All right. Let's, oh, let's hear your side of this. Did she represent yeah. your side well? It'll do. It'll do. All right. Let's hear your thinking. Yeah, so you get blamed for everything. If anybody's going to be blamed, it's got to be Aaron, you know? It's like when you mm-hmm. have a kid and you make commitments and then you don't want to go later and mm-hmm. then you decide, ah, uh, the kid, you know, oh, the baby didn't sleep today or, oh, the baby won't wake up from the nap or whatever. That baby becomes a fault default, right? It kind of gets you out of things and, and problems. But now it's like I'm the fault default as I've grown up because I'm the one like people are like, oh, who do we blame? Let's blame Aaron. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, if you replace the word fault, so we're all agreed that the word default is okay here, right? Right. Because default means, <laughs> default means the thing that you fall back on um, automatically before you consider other options, right? Right. Like it's the baseline setting before you change things. Sure. Okay. If you replace the word fault, though, with excuse or blame, does your version still work? Excuse or blame. So blame well, default. Well, without trying, or, I have to say absolutely. Or, or excuse <laughs> default. Yeah. Now, try, try Elena's. Does default blame? Like, if I say Aaron is the default blame or Aaron is the default excuse, does that work? Mm. Both. This is the all problem right. that we're having. If I could get all four of us on the line here, we could all talk about the problem is that we've got two nouns behaving differently in two separate phrases. So right. in fault default, default is a noun, and fault is a noun behaving adjectivally. So it's basically attributive noun. And in default fault, fault is a noun, and default is behaving attributively, uh, adjectivally. So it's behaving like an adjective. And so this is where you're kind of getting confusion here. Martha, I don't know about you. For me, um, I think fault default is the better choice. You know what? Oh, can honestly, you say that louder than one more time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because fault sounds like something that's wrong with somebody. And so if you're saying default fault, it's, it's not the same as saying oh. uh, the, the person... <laughs> At fault is always the default. I I'm <laughs> I can I I have it in my head. I just can't explain it very well. But but I agree with Grant. <laughs> fault default oh. is where I would go. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. So who who whose was that? This is Aaron. So Aaron was Aaron. You were correct. I'm the fault default. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I get a free trip. All right, y'all, text in the mail. <laughs> oh, this is the well, best pandemic day I ever. Hope... 2020 got way better. That's sad. That's really sad. I hope your okay. friendship withstands this drama. We have to live in the moment, Martha. <laughs> that's that's true. We do. And, you know, I, I guess your only hope is that we do have opinionated listeners, and I could hear Thanks somebody, goodness. you know, maybe calling in and and uh, or writing us, us for and, being wrong. <laughs> yeah, so there may be oh. a thin sliver of hope, but um, there'll be six months of argument in our email inbox. Yeah. I guarantee <laughs> so it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> nice. Welcome to our world. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, you two take care, and I hope uh, everyone stops blaming Erin because she was right for once. Yeah, tell us how that trip goes. Yeah, (laughs) finally. Oh, we'll let you know, and we'll let you know our new dilemma. (laughs) You all are great. Thanks a bunch. And just just decide who's navigating to the Airbnb before you go. Bye-bye. Take care now. Oh, word. (laughs) Take care, y'all. Take care. <laughs> oh, Grant. You know, I th- part of this is that I have this native speaker's instinct that that fault default is right. Yeah, it, it kind of your native speaker's intuition on language kind of gets in the way, right? Mm. But the reason I went to replacing fault with blame or excuse is because if you do that, it becomes a little clearer. So blame default sounds a lot better than default blame because she's not a blame. She's a default. Right? right? So if you treat that last word in both of these phrases as a noun, when we're talking about Aaron, she isn't a fault. Mm-hmm. 
We would right. never call her a fault. We would right. call her a de- default. And so it kind of works out better as blame default. She's yes. the thing that def- we, the blame defaults to. Yes. Every time there's somebody to blame, the default is Aaron, right? Yeah. So blame <laughs> default works better. Therefore, fault default works better. Yeah. Blame functioning as an adjective. Yeah, but before we mess this up further, let's just give the phone number and go (laughs) to another call. (laughs) Please agree with us. (laughs) 877-929-9673. Here's a wonderful word, worldcraft. It's a collective term for the unique skills, wisdom, and experience that an older person has amassed in their lifetime. Worldcraft. Worldcraft. Ooh, yeah. that's nice. Isn't that nice? It was around in Old English, and then it sort of lay dormant for a long time, uh, and then was uh, revived at least a little bit in the 19th century. Worldcraft. Oh, I do like that. That's a nice summary of everything that you know. Hmm. Yeah, worldcraft. I could it, see that being used in obituaries or eulogies. Yeah, or video games. <laughs> War video of games. Worldcraft. <laughs> <laughs> Hey there, you have a way with words. Hi, um, my name is Nick Spiker, and I'm calling from uh, San Antonio, Texas. Oh, welcome, Nick. What's up? What's on your mind, Nick? Yeah, so I wanted to ask about a word, um, kiffin. It's a word my dad used to use when we were younger. Maybe I was five or six. Uh, My brother was a little older. And on the weekends, he would make us lunch. And he would uh, say, like, hey, we're having tiffin. And we'd be like, yay, we always loved it. But it would be kind of a meal that he would put together just with whatever was available, like, you know, leftover spaghetti or just carrot sticks or just kind of a mishmash of things uh, collected from, you know, the kitchen and the cupboards and put together on plates. And I've never heard the word again. (laughs) <laughs> and he doesn't know where it came from. So I was curious uh, if you knew anything about Tiffin and what the history of that word is. Leftover so... spaghetti and carrot sticks. That sounds <laughs> like a meal. It's, it's so interesting. Yeah, particularly for kids. That's not a bad one for kids. Get the vegetables in there. Get the carbs in there. Not too much complaining. Um, all right. Let me ask you some questions about your dad. Did he spend any time in South Asia? I don't think so. Um, he was in the military, uh, but no, I don't. I don't believe he was ever deployed. He's very well read, though. Okay. Does he read Kipling? Maybe. <laughs> That's Maybe. possible. Okay. Um, does he spend any time um, in Indian culture or Sri Lankan or Bangladeshi culture? Not that I know of. No, not that I know of. Okay. I know he's a big uh, war war history buff. Hmm. Um, oh, okay. So does he study British, the British uh, during World War II or World War I or the British Empire? Yeah, de- definitely World War II. I think he's well-versed in that. Okay. The reason I'm asking all these questions is it, it's a, it's strange that an American knows this word uh, just for daily use because it generally means a light snack or a lunch, um, a light lunch, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily eaten at mealtime. So it might be... Um, just as you put it, uh, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, although it, at times it's been described in various writings as something more elaborate. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary says a light midday meal or a luncheon. Um, other resources I have, I have a dictionary, a couple of dictionaries of Indian English. One of them quotes yeah. a, an older text uh, that talks about uh, the meals being so elaborate that people would overeat. Um, they would just use it to pass the time, kind of stuffing themselves in between meals. Another one says that the tiffin would be uh, grilled fowls, mutton chops, cold meats, and sometimes curry and rice. So just uh, really kind of these elaborate meals. Um, <laughs> tiffin is not only the name of the meal, but it's also the name, even now in India, for the name of the metal container that holds the food. So it's kind of a this stack of circular lunch boxes, so to speak, and you can c- carry them. And so you have these tiffin wallas, these guys who bring the food from these 
restaurants, more or less, these cafeterias, to all uh-huh. the offices. You pre-order your food, your tiffin, and they bring them to you every single day for lunch. And they just carry these large cylinders, these stacks of these tiffins, to all the establishments, and then, and then they come fetch them later. So those are two different meanings of tiffin. And we're um, spelling this T is in Thomas I... F is in Frank, F is in Frank, I-N, right? Tiffin? Yeah, that's right, Tiffin. Yeah, yeah Tiffin. that's how I always imagined it. Um, so that's a, officially an Indian word then. Yeah, but it comes from English originally. <laughs> so it's a, it's borrowed okay. into Indian English from an English verb, tiff, meaning to eat or to drink, or to drink slowly. Huh. Yeah. Oh, maybe from the from England being there, from colonizing right, yeah, India. Right, yeah, obviously the the English, uh, yeah, the English dominating the the Indian uh, subcontinent for so long and um, trying to rule it. Very interesting. I wonder how he started to use that word. Well, that's what I was Very asking. If he if he if he studies war, the the British and their experience in the subcontinent is something that many people who are interested in reading about war often look into because there are so many successes and failures there. There's so much to be learned from um, uh, arrogance and hubris and um, the uh, just different moments of valor and different moments of cowardice. There's so much to be discovered there when you look at the two sides and the way they succeeded and failed. So often you'll just run across these uh, great descriptions of the two cultures clashing and learning from each other or rejecting each other. So I wouldn't be surprised if Tiffin came up in his reading. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your help. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah sure. Thanks, Nick, for, thanks calling. for calling. Really appreciate it. Bye bye. Now I have to go get Indian food, Martha. <laughs> <laughs> well, before you do that, um, there's no connection with the idea of Tiff being a little quarrel, right? No. As far as we know, there's no connection to the idea of Tiff mm-hmm. being a little quarrel. No. So mm-hmm. it's just the two Tiffins. One is the metal tin that holds the lunch, and there's then the Tiffin that is the lunch itself or the mm. small light meal itself. Yeah. Mm, and this goes back it. at least 200 years. Now I have a word for those lunches I throw together. <laughs> Carrot sticks and spaghetti. Oh, we call them American tapas in my house. Oh, that's nice. I like that. American tapas. Well, talk to us, 877-929-9673, or send your stories about language to words at waywardradio.org. Thanks to senior producer Stephanie Levine, editor Tim Felton, and production assistant Rachel Elizabeth Weisler. You can send us messages, subscribe to the podcast and newsletter, and catch up on hundreds of past episodes at waywardradio.org. Our toll-free line is always open in the U.S. and Canada, 877-929-9673, or email us words at waywardradio.org. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who are changing the way the world talks about language. Many thanks to Wayward board member and our friend Bruce Rogo for his help and expertise. Thanks for listening. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Until next time, goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.